my name is Clayton, and you're listening to the Isaiah 43 podcast, where we explore how God has formed us, redeemed us, and how he calls us today. Each week we will journey through scripture to understand all that God has done, and what exactly his call is for our lives today. This is week 58, an apologetics week, where we combat the world's lies with God's truth. This week's topic has a lot of ties to a topic that's been circulating a lot recently in the news. It is a topic that has slowly encroached its way into the national conversation, but we need to know about it. It's a conversation that has been present in American life for quite some time, but only recently has it taken on a new name. This week, we will be discussing the separation of church and state, or as it has recently become known as Christian nationalism. We need to set out to define these terms first, and we'll see where they come from. But there, from there, as we do for the Apologetics Week, we will look at what the Bible says. But first, we need to pray, so let us pray. Father, we come before you today, and we we ask for your forgiveness, Lord. We ask that you will be merciful to us. Remind us, Lord, that it is you who, who who has done everything, Lord. We don't we don't do anything. It's nothing that we have ever done, Lord, that makes you want us. But you choose us because you will have mercy on who you will have mercy, and you will have, Lord, just all the glory because of what you've done. And let us remember that. As we read your word today, Lord, let us be reminded that a nation who puts you first, Lord, then that will be a blessed nation. And Lord, let us remember that we are one nation under you, Lord. And if we ever forget that, then we are a nation gone under. Please lead us and guide us in this conversation, Lord. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Like I said, let's begin by defining what these terms mean and where they come from. Let's start with some background here. This conversation can be traced back far and wide, but as our conversation circles around the United States, let's begin there. The United States Constitution was ratified, meaning put into place as a law of the land in 1789. Thomas Jefferson was elected the third president of the United States in 1801 and served as president until 1809. During this time, Jefferson wrote to the Baptist Association in Danbury, Connecticut, in an attempt to assure them that the rumors of a state-sponsored church were not true. In the letter, Jefferson wrote, quote, Gentlemen, the affectionate sentiments of esteem and approbation which you are so good as to express towards me on behalf of the Danbury Baptist Association give me the highest satisfaction. My duties dictate a faithful and zealous pursuit of the interests of my constituents and in proportion as they are persuaded of my fidelity to those duties. The discharge of them becomes more and more pleasing. Believing with you that religion is a matter which solely lies between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Congress thus inhibited 
from acts respecting religion and the executive authorized only to execute their acts. I have refrained from prescribing even those occasional performances of devotion, practiced indeed by the executive of another nation, as the legal head of its church, but subject here as religious exercises only to the voluntary regulations and dis discipline of each respective sect. Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. I reciprocate your kind prayers for the protection and blessing of the common father and creator of man and tender you for yourselves and your religious association assurances of my high respect and esteem. Signed, Thomas Jefferson. From here, the phrase separation of church and state began to rise. David Barton, an author focused on highlighting what Jefferson meant in his letter, writes, quote, Furthermore, earlier courts had always viewed Jefferson's Danbury letter for just what it was, a private personal letter to a specific group. There is probably no other instance in America's history where words spoken by a single individual in a private letter, words clearly divorced from their context, have become the sole authority of a national policy. Finally, Jefferson's Danbury letter should never be invoked as a standalone document. A proper analysis of Jefferson's views must include his numerous other statements on the First Amendment. End quote. As Barton notes, many did not even think much about Jefferson's letter, and no one had considered much about his words. Yet in 1947, the Supreme Court ruled that the Constitution supports a separation between church and state. Yet this phrase is found nowhere in the Constitution and was taken from Jefferson's letter. Remember that his goal was not to keep religion out of government, but to keep government out of religion. In recent years, however, Jefferson's idea has been flipped on its head. Some have argued that religion needs to stay out of government policies. They have argued that the Christian ideas are too outdated to be applied to the modern-day American government. Anyone who believes that America's laws should be based on the principles of the Bible are labeled Christian nationalists. They're painted in a negative light, and the American people are told they must be cautious about this quote-unquote extremism. With all this said, however, this is not a political show. We don't talk about politics here. What we do talk about is what the Bible has to say. And if the Bible, God's ultimate authority, says that we should or shouldn't do something and that is what I'll advocate for. So now, we turn our attention to some questions. First, what does the Bible say about Christians engaging in the affairs of government? Second, what does the Bible say about the separation between church and state? And third, we'll stop to discuss whether or not America is a Christian nation. As I said, let's start with the Bible. What does it have to say about Christians engaging in the matters of government? Let's start with the Old Testament and work our way up to the New. As always, we will be reading from the ESV or English Standard Version. Our first reading for the day will be Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow. 
that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. When we read this, we have to keep in mind that this was given to the Israelites as a part of their civil law based on the moral law. It may have been something for the government of the people of ancient Israel to guide them in their governance, but it's also something we should keep in mind as we vote and elect leaders. These leaders should be God-honoring, honorable, and have a high understanding of justice. These verses do tell us very clearly on what we should be looking for in our leaders, yet as I've said at the beginning, if we remember that this was for the people of Israel in the ancient world, then this doesn't necessarily apply to us today. Is it a guide we should continue to follow? Uh, yes. There's a lot more to be said about how Christians should interact with the government authorities, though, so let's take a look at those. Now we begin our journey into the New Testament. You may be surprised at how often the New Testament writers talk about the government and authorities. It almost makes you think that there's something that God is connecting between the role of Christians and the government that they're under. Several writers writing at different times and places make mention of this. But let's start with the Apostle Paul in one of his greatest books, Romans. Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7 reads, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay attention to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Unfortunately, we cannot dedicate the amount of time we ought to when examining these verses. But there are a few things that we can take note of real quick. First, the apostle says that we are to be able to be subject to the governing authorities. What? What is he telling us that we are? Uh, is he telling us that we are to obey what the government says? It's a hard concept for us to imagine in today's world when we feel so divided over everything that the government does. Paul writes that there is no authority except that which comes from God, and since God is in sovereign control, Paul argues that the government, and whoever is in charge at the time, has been placed there by God. But what really stands out to me is verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evil, the wrongdoer. For your good. Paul has already in the book of Romans touched on how God works all things for our good, and now he writes about it again. This time he writes how God has ordained leaders for our good. Now I remember stopping the first time I read this and thought, Wait, is Paul saying that even Christians in persecuted countries have had their leaders ordained by God for our good? How can that be? Well, God can often use these leaders as an instrument of judgment on the people. We see that throughout the Old Testament, so that is a possibility. We know that when a nation is under judgment, 
its leaders are weak and ineffective. The people groan and bicker and fall to whatever their base desires are. Okay, okay. I get that. But still, that doesn't answer the question, how can God possibly use an evil government for our good? Well, immediately, we think of how even in the worst of times, we are often refined. and We lean on what we need the most. During difficult times of persecution, Christians come out stronger and more resilient than ever. Their faith and dependence on God is typically much more than that of someone who has never been through trials. God is working it in them to produce a great faith in them. Let's check out the last verse that we read here in Romans. It reminds me of another verse somewhere else. In verse 7, Paul writes, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now that brings to mind something that our Lord Jesus said. Let's jump back to the gospel according to Luke. In Luke chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus says, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus is telling us here that there are certain things that belong to the earthly governments here. Our taxes, our civic responsibilities, and things like that. Those belong to the government. While God requires the things that pertain to him, faith, repentance, obedience, etc., etc. This is also in the context of finances. Caesar, or whatever government that we are under, requires so much of our finances, and yes, I don't like that any more than any other American, but Jesus tells us that we are to give to them what belongs to them. Meanwhile, God asks for our tithes. It reminds me of what we learned from Nell Reagan in this week's Imitator series. The Lord will make your 90% twice as big if you make sure he gets his tenth. Now, Paul was not the only apostle to, who commented on this. Simon Peter did as well. So let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And in these verses, Simon Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I think Peter writes it quite eloquently, too. You know, so often as kids, we just ask the question, why? I've learned as I've gotten older that we never really stop asking that question. Well, lucky for us, Simon Peter tells us that we are to be subject to the government institutions and authorities. First, he tells us that it is the will of God. But is it the will of God so that he will make foolish, ignorant people to be quiet? The citizen who obeys the law, as long as these laws do not go against God's law, will show their submission and obedience to Christ according to Simon Peter. In following the words, in the following words, in the verse 17, Peter is writing that if we do these things, then Christ will be glorified and people will see this and be drawn closer to the things of God. Now, Titus also echo, echoes this sentiment in his letter. See, Peter was writing to believers and saying that we should live in a way that only brings honor and glory to Christ. We should be able to prepare a defense for those who ask us about the hope we have. Titus, however, is writing to a different audience. 
his audience is very pastoral. So when he writes, he is writing to the leaders of the church. He reminds us that if we do these things, then God's love in us will be shown. Let's read Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 now. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. But we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You can see how Titus is writing to a different audience within these verses. He highlights that even pastors should be reminding their congregations to obey. Notice something important that he says here. He doesn't say that a pastor should be up there telling the people to vote for one candidate or the other. Instead, he barely spends any time at all on the matter of being submissive to the rulers, and instead, he focuses more on teaching the people to be good and faithful servants. Despite all of these things, though, we have to make an important note. Yes, all of these writers may say something about obeying the government as long as there are rules that honor God, but what about when the rules do not honor God and deny who Christ is? Are we simply to shrug our shoulders, say, okay, and go along with the crowd? No. Ultimately, in Acts chapter 5, verses 27 and 29, Simon Peter and the rest of the apostles make it very clear what we should do. These verses are so great. So once again, Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 29. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The high priest and his gang looked at the apostles and said, We forbid you from speaking and teaching in this name of Jesus. You can practically tell how angry they are. These rulers do not like the name of Jesus and they want it gone. But the apostles, who are seemingly on trial, simply and calmly reply with, We must obey God rather than men. And that sums up everything we need to know about how a Christian should engage with the affairs of the government. These verses that we have read here today answer both of our questions that we set out to answer. First, how should a Christian engage with the affairs of the government? They are to obey the government because it is what God has ordained to come to pass, particularly for our good. We are to render to the government what belongs to it, and we are to give to God what belongs to God. Ultimately, though, we are to obey God rather than men. Second, what does the Bible say about the separation between church and state? The Bible knows little about the separation of church and state. It makes it clear that we are to base our laws and rules on that of the Bible, this really was not a controversial matter until about the last 40 or 50 years. Christians since the beginning of the church 2,000 years ago knew that the best way for a nation to prosper was to be established on God's principles. Everyone knew this up until five minutes ago 
when American society decided to reject its Christian principles. Which brings us to our third and final point. Is America a Christian nation? To many, this was a question that everyone knew the answer to until, again, five minutes ago. So let's go through some examples and see if it is. I think first we have to take a look at one of the major documents that laid the groundwork for the establishment of the nation, the Declaration of Independence. July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence is inscribed with the words at the, these words at the beginning of the document. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the government, of the governed, rather, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Thomas Jefferson, one of the wisest of the founding fathers, pinned this as quickly as he could. Yet in a group of men surrounded by deists, Freemasons, and more, the Christian message shines so clearly in this document. The mentions of God and the rights of man derived only from God stand out so clearly. The founding fathers were determined to ensure that God was the bedrock of the democracy that they were establishing. The importance of God in American life would be mentioned again and again by the founding fathers, especially Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson would write, quote, the God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secured when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. End quote. Democratic Senator Robert Byrd in 1962 commented on these words and said, quote, Jefferson's words are forceful an explicit warning that to remove God from this country will destroy it, end quote. It is evident that even Jefferson knew how important it is to have God at the forefront of this new republic. Even Jefferson's political enemy, Alexander Hamilton, admitted that God would be an integral part of American society and how the government was established could only have been a part of God's divine plan. Hamilton wrote, quote, For my own part, I sincerely esteem it a system which without the finger of God never could have been suggested and agreed upon by such a diversity of interests. The evidence persists through history as even the Capitol building was used as a church, at one time holding services for over 2,000 people, which made it the largest church in the United States in 1867. Only now that we've begun to ignore our God and our history, have we begun to deny that America is only great because she is good? And as Ronald Reagan once said, 
she ever ceases to be good, then she will cease to be great. Please pray for our nation. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.